Um, this morning's reading is from the book of Acts. Whenever I look at the book of Acts with kids, I always say it's like the adventure book of the Bible. And today's passage is definitely comes true to that. There's um, a jailbreak, there's some really cool names, and then a king dies in a very unusual way. So let's get into it. Um, it's Acts chapter 11, and we're actually going to be starting the reading at verse 27 and go all the way through to the end of chapter 12. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial over the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up. I mean, quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went right through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without even opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell James and the brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion about the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. 
He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of, ma- not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Amen. There's a title for you from Acts 11.27 to 12.25. You don't need clarity. You don't need clarity. As Israelites were on the verge of the promised land, about to go in and take it, Moses said to them in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, he said, He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Habakkuk, in chapter 2, verse 4, says the righteous will live by faith. And then in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, Paul the Apostle writes to the church and he says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, which means that faith is something that is meant to grow. My aim for you this morning from Acts chapter 12 is my prayers that God may take it and use it in such a way that he will deepen, you will deepen your trust in him. My aim that your trust will go deeper and deeper in the one whose ways are always perfect and his ways are always good. If we read Acts chapter 12 carefully, there are various characters in the chapter. Did you notice that? And they have various experiences, don't they? So, for example, if you look at Acts 12 verse 1 and 2, you've got James that is arrested, tried, and he's executed. Verse 3 and 4, you've got Peter that is arrested, but before he can be tried, we know that he has a rather spectacular jailbreak. We find the church praying in Acts 12, 12. And we find that Peter then moves on to a different place. And then the gods who were guarding Peter, they're killed by Herod in Acts 12, 19. And then Herod dies of worms in Acts 12 and 23. Now here's the thing. As we read this narrative, we can be very, very tempted to ask the question, why? So, so why, why did God, for example, allow the death with James, but he didn't allow that with Peter? And why did the gods have to die, uh, um, and, and, and it wasn't even their fault? And if, if, if Herod was eaten by worms, and actually we might be okay with that because of the type of guy he was, why are others not eaten by worms? And 
So the questions of why and why and why can go on and on. The question of why can be such a distraction because it's not the question that God answers in the difficult circumstances of his beloved people. Rather, God in our circumstances wants to show us what he is doing and that we should respond in trust. This illustration was given to me this week, and it is such a profound one, and one that is starting to have such a profound effect on my own life, but I'm going to give it to you up front, and then I'm going to give you the same illustration at the end, because it crystallizes the very essence of this message this morning. There was a man by the name of John Kavanaugh, and he was an ethics teacher, and he was spending some time in India, and he spent three months with Mother Teresa, and she worked in what was known as the House of the Dying. And John Kavanaugh, as he was there for the three months period, at one time he went to, to, to Mother Teresa, and John Kavanaugh was struggling with the direction on his life. And as he approached her, she asked him, John, what can I do for you? He asked Mother Teresa, pray that I have clarity. Mother Teresa said firmly, no, I will not do that. He was surprised and asked her why. She explained, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. Taken aback, He said to her, but you seem to have clarity from God. Mother Teresa laughed. I've never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. So I pray that you will trust God. Let me take you to my first hit. The plumb line of providence. You know what a plumb line is, don't you? Some of you will know. It's a line with a plumb on it. Very simple. And uh, as builders tell me, it is used to finding the depth of water or determining the vertical on an upright surface. I have no idea what the second bit means. Uh, It'll make sense. Have a look at verses 27 and 28. It says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of of Claudius. Here's what you've got to see. It is the Spirit of God that reveals to the church in Antioch that a famine is coming. The Spirit of God reveals a famine is coming. And that's the plumb line for the passage. Because what it means is that every single experience that is coming in Acts chapter 12 is part of the providence of God. It's the Spirit of God that has brought this famine. Therefore, every experience that is coming and you're about to see is of the providence of God as well. It means the famine is the providence of God. It means what happened to James, what happened to Peter, what happened to the church, what happened to the gods, what happened to Herod is part of the providence of God. Just keep these words in mind. It's it's a providence of God, a a God who is the rock, whose works are perfect, His ways are just. The providence of a God who does no wrong and upright and good is He. 
You see, Psalm, chapter, Psalm 9 verse 8 says, He rules the world in righteousness and He judges the peoples with equity. In Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24, it says this, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. not sure where the rest of the verse went, but he says, let me read it again. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they know and have understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these things I take delight. So as you start to see the providence of God coming through this morning, through this passage, comes from a God who delights in righteousness, delights in justice, delights in kindness, whose ways are good and right and perfect. Let me give you a definition of providence. God, whose ways are always perfect, upholds, directs, dispenses, and governs all creatures, actions, and things with all wisdom, holiness, power, goodness, and justice for the redemption of His people. In his son Jesus. Let me read it again. The providence of God is God whose ways are always perfect. He upholds, directs, dispenses, and governs all creatures, actions, and things with all his wisdom, holiness, power, goodness, and justice for the redemption of his people in his son Jesus. If we understand who God is, and if we understand what he's doing, we're going to be able to trust God with the circumstances of our lives, no matter how difficult they may be. So from the plumb line of providence, we go to the people of providence. Now, if you've got your Bible open and, and looking at that passage, we saw various people, and, and we, we see all sorts of things going on, don't we? There's human drama. There's death, there's murder, there's life, there's incredible answers to prayers, there's jailbreak, intrigue, shonky politics, irony, humor, faith, arrogance, judgment, redemption, and so on and so on. But let's start with the three Christians in the passage, Peter, James, and John. It was about this time, chapter 12, verse 1, that the king Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Herod puts James to death. He murders him. But what about his brother John? Now, because we've got the whole Bible, we know that John wasn't executed. He probably lived to a very old Age, but he was exiled, you remember, to the island of, of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. But then you've got Peter in verse 3 and 4. He is arrested, and we know from verses 6 to 10, he has the experience of one of the most spectacular jailbreaks of all time. Anybody know the name John Killick? John Killick, does that ring a bell? You Aussie should know it. Uh, John Killick was an Australian career criminal. He had a knack for escaping custody. He escaped custody multiple times, but his claim to fame 
back in 1999 is when he was in Sydney's Silverwater Jail, and this made headlines. Do you remember Dale? Uh, his partner at the time, Lucy Dudko, um, hijacked a helicopter, and she flew the thing into the church grounds. Uh, into church grounds. <laughs> wow. Sorry. Into, <laughs> into the prison grounds, and he jumps on, and they, 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 they flew off. It was a pretty daring special jailbreak, but nothing quite like the one that you've just read with Peter in Acts chapter 12. Now here's what Luke wants you to ponder. He doesn't want you to ponder so much the spectacular jailbreak, but ponder this. Peter, James, and John all had a very different experience of the, of the providence of God. They had three very different experiences under the providential hand of God. Peter, uh, James is arrested, tried and executed. Peter is arrested, but he gets jailbreak. John is exiled on the island of Patmos. And what we're supposed to see is that there's no one way that God works in the lives of his people. What God has in store for one is not necessarily in store for the other. The pathway for one is not the pathway for another. In fact, as the other James, which is the half-brother of Jesus, later wrote in James chapter 4, 13, he wrote this, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Well, you, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As we live our lives together as the church, as we are seeking to make maturing disciples an ever-increasing number, God is going to work providentially, very differently, in each of our lives. Let me put it another way. When, when James was arrested and put in jail in verse 2, do you, think, do you think the church was praying for James? Do you think they were praying that he'd be released? Of course they were. When Peter was arrested and put in jail, what, were the ch what was the church doing? Down in verse 12, they were? They were praying. And what was the outcome? <laughs> James is executed. Peter is jailbreak. Let me ask you, was there something wrong with the prayers for James? Was it like there was something more powerful? Was there some, were the prayers better? Were they more intense? Were they more fervorous? Did they have more prayer meetings for Peter than they had for James so that James is executed and Peter's released? Well, the answer is obviously not, right? God said no to those prayers for release. And he answered affirmatively for the release of Peter. In fact, as you notice, the church was so stunned by the answer, they freaked out. They couldn't believe that Peter was at the door. Here's what I want you to ponder this morning. God works through the prayers of His people, but He does not answer all the prayers of His people in the same way. Sometimes God may say yes. Sometimes God may say no. Sometimes there may be a delayed answer. God is sovereign and He is providential over every action, over every 
person. And so the outcomes for his people are all different. You have to understand this morning, my brother or sister, that your life will ultimately turn out according to God's way. But it is going to look different to another brother or sister. Some things are going to be very difficult. Some things are going to be wonderful. And if God says no to a prayer for healing or rescue or change, we do have to learn the humility of accepting that from God's hand. Let me give you another angle on this. Have you ever wondered how Jesus Christ could be on earth? He goes around healing everybody, Raising the dead, casting out demons, and da-da, and yet he leaves John the Baptist in jail. And eventually John's head is taken off because he was something of a moral voice to Herod and his family. Why is it so varied? Why is it so different? Well, here's an answer. In the very next chapter in Acts 13, verse 36, talking of David in the context, but now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. You know what that's saying? When God's plan of redemption for David's life was done, when his plan of redemption for David was finished, guess what? He took him. He took him home. When God's plan of redemption for James was finished, he took him home. When God's plan for Peter was finished, much later, took him home. When John on Patmos, when, his, when God's plan of redemption for him was finished, he took, took him home. When, when God's plan of redemption is done in your life, then he'll take you home. One of the questions that we, we ask, and it's an agonizing one, and one that we, we must ask is, is something like this. I mean, for example, what kind of purpose could God have for someone living with some sort of disease or illness or whatever in a care home for year after year after year after year, and the pain that on goes with the rest of the family? The answer is that God is still working His plan of Redemption in their lives, in the lives of that person in the care home, in the lives of the family that are serving him. It's when the plan of redemption for your life is done that God will take you home to glory. I was talking to someone recently. I have these sort of conversations quite often with people. That person came to see me. The person was in such pain and brokenness. They had such real hurt as they, as they cried and cried. And, and the, the sort of questions that were coming out of their heart was, is, is, is this God's plan for me? And, and, and what is God's plan for me? And, and if this is God's plan for me, how am I, my, my going, how am I going to cope? And, and the answer at the very deepest, profound Level is God is just and God is right and God is good and God has saved you in his purposes for Jesus Christ and he is working out those purposes for you so that you trust him. 
In uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes these words. He receives a, a gift from the church at, at Philippi. And he says, well, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, because I've learned, the con- I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. But I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. How, how is it that the Apostle Paul got there? How is it possible that Paul in jail again can get to that point of saying, I am what? Content. Whether it's up or whether it's down, whether it's rich or whether it's poor, whether it's healthy, whether it's sick, I have learned the secret of being content. It was the faithful providence of God that God had put him there. That this was part of God's redemptive plan for him. And he knew, and he knew that despite the difficult circumstances, he had a faithful God that was working out his purposes for him in Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. There are things that have happened to you. There are things that are going to happen to you. They will all be under God's providence, designed to teach us a contentment in His redemptive purposes. That was Peter. That was James. That was John. That's for us. But what about Herod and the gods? Herod has James arrested, murdered, killed. Peter's Peter's arrested unjustly, and and, and there's injustice. Herod seemingly gets away with it, doesn't he? There's there's no justice at this point. But by the time we get down to verses 22 and 23, Herod accepts some adulation. He thinks he's a god. He takes the praise of a god. And presumably the angel that rescued Peter is the same angel that now gives Herod a dose of worms, and he dies. So many nuances of the providence of God here. The first thing to see is that God does not always bring evil and injustice to book straight away. He does not always bring injustice and evil to book straight away. And we see this over and over in the course of life, don't we? Again, we want to ask questions like, well, why doesn't God strike down murderous leaders like when they murder people? Why do some live long and others not? Some die like Herod and some don't. God can and does sometimes immediately bring a sense of justice to evil, but very often evil is allowed to run. It's allowed to perpetuate And we have to learn to be content in that because as we see in the passage, God will bring about the justice of Herod. God sees, God knows, God does bring justice and he will not forget. But here's something we've got to understand. 
when God is not bringing immediate justice for evil or sin or whatever it might be, He is giving an opportunity for repentance. But God will bring justice. I wonder if you remember these profound words from Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And I'll show them to you in just, in just a moment. As he understood that God was going to bring justice on unfaithful Israel using the Babylonians, here's what he said. Lord, I heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. In your wrath that will come and must come, Lord. Remember mercy. Lord, in your justice that must and will come, remember mercy. For those people who do such despicable crimes, for those who, who hurt people beyond measure, Lord, in your wrath, Lord, in your justice, would you remember mercy? Some evil tyrants will live a long life and they won't have any earthly justice for what they have done. But the day of judgment is coming. As it came on Herod, it is coming on every human being that will stand before the judge of the earth. And God has given testimony to this. I'll get there. The, work, the Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for the day of disaster. Now here's the thing, again. We've got to be very careful to presume how God's going to work that out in this life. But God does work out the day of disaster for the wicked. And there's Acts 17, 31 for you. Set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man Jesus he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. Now the really uncomfortable bit about the gods. Because Herod is so baffled by what has happened, he doesn't even know there's been the sort of supernatural jailbreak. There's some conspiracy going on against him, as you can imagine. He's a bit of a megalomaniac, this guy. And he has all four squads of soldiers killed. They did nothing wrong. They weren't even negligent in their duty. They didn't even know that the supernatural jailbreak had taken place. See, that too is the providence of God. That too is God's providence working out God's redemptive purposes in the lives of those soldiers, in the lives of their families. It doesn't negate Herod killing them because the judgment on Herod is about to fall. Such a great mystery, isn't it? As these circumstances unwrap, unfold, as they work out, we can get again so distracted in asking the question, why, why, why? 
rather we do need to entrust ourselves to the one whose providence is always good and right and all his ways are perfect. So I ask you this question, is God, is God, did God providentially rule over James's life? Did he providentially rule over Peter's life? Over Herod's? Over the gods? Over this country? How about over the referendum that's coming? Over this church? Over your life? Over my life? Over every detail? So thirdly, the proclamation in Providence. There's a beautiful, beautiful verse in verse 24. But the word of God continued, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. You see? In the midst of all the different circumstances that are getting worked out by God's redemptive plans, what's happening? The word of God is flourishing and effective. What that means is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus dying for our sin and rising from the dead, that good news is going out. It is doing its work. It is bringing about the redemption of God's people for God's glory as He planned. Now, here's the nuance. It's very easy to say something like this. Well, 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 well God will save His people despite the circumstances. It's not despite the circumstances. As if to say that somehow the circumstances are not part of the providences of God, but the working of the Word and the working of the Gospel is. No, 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 no. The Gospel of Jesus will flourish and spread, doing its saving work precisely because the circumstances are under the providence of God. Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Even the onslaught of the evil one on God's people will not stop God saving his people. But listen, even the gates of hell are within the providence of God. So have a look at that definition again of providence. And then I'm going to start to wrap up with some personal application. God, whose ways are always perfect, upholds, directs, dispenses, and governs all creatures, actions, and things with all His wisdom, holiness, power, goodness, and justice for the redemption of His people in His Son, Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How are you responding this morning to God's providence? How are you responding to it? Now, if you are anything like me, and you are, except for that stuff over there, um, it's a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle to respond in deep trust. Many 
many times. You see, when the providence of God is good, when it's enjoyable, when it's pleasurable, we respond in faith and we respond in praise and we respond in gratitude. But when the providence is hard, when it's confusing, when it's painful, we want to spend so much time asking the question, why? Instead of entrusting ourselves to the one who is faithfully working out his plan in our life. God's divine providence in Jesus calls for a deep trust, which is often a deep struggle. I know it is for me. Perhaps it's a terrifying experience that you've had. Perhaps it's a prodigal child. Perhaps it's a devastating loss. Perhaps it's a relational breakdown. Perhaps it's an awful sickness. Perhaps it's wanting something so good. And God is not providing it. See, when I dwell on the problem, it leads to emotional exhaustion. It leads to doubt. It leads to fear. It leads to unbelief. It leads to seeking for coping mechanisms rather than trusting in the one whose ways are good, are right, and whose ways are always perfect. See, God is achieving. God is achieving his redemption in you. And the righteous will live by faith. Believing in what God is doing, even when all the circumstances make no sense. Let me ask you this question. In what areas of your life right now are you struggling to trust? What areas right now? Your children? Your relationships, or some of them, a lack of, finances, job, health. Let me read something to you. I'm going to read it twice. In the very areas you are struggling to trust God is exactly where God wants you to trust. Does that make sense? In the very areas you are struggling to trust God is exactly where God wants you to trust Him. When we focus on the problems, when we focus on the circumstances, when we focus on the what-ifs, leads to anxiety, stress, doubt, and all those things. So if I'm going to bring myself to entrust, entrust myself to the one who is faithful beyond measure, 
that is the pathway to peace and to joy and to faith in the Holy Spirit. Let me give you two illustrations as I close. A couple of chapters later in Acts chapter 16, we read this, Paul and Silas in jail again. The crowd joined in to attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates then ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Uh, rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he had received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Here's Paul and Silas' response. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. This is providence in jail. This is providence in prison. This is praising in prison. This is practicing providence in prison. Here are two men that are not seeking clarity. They're living by faith in a faithful, providential God. These are the right words coming up. Jeremiah 9.23. Jeremiah cried out, Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. Wow. So let me give you the illustration again. John Kavanaugh is working with Mother Teresa for three months in Calcutta in one of the worst slums that you can ever imagine. He's there for three months. John Kavanagh, a professor of ethics, goes to Mother Teresa. And she asks him, what can I do for you? He asked, pray that I have clarity. Mother Teresa said firmly, no, I will not do that. He was surprised and asked her why, and she explained, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. But you seem to have so much clarity, Mother Teresa. (laughs) She laughed, I've never had clarity, but what I've always had is trust. So I will pray that you will trust God. You don't need clarity. I don't need clarity. So I'll pray that you and I will trust our God. Amen? Let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your works are perfect and all your ways are just. You are a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just as you. And the righteous will live by faith. But Heavenly Father, that you would grant to us a growing faith.
in the Lord Jesus, in your sovereign purposes and design, in your redemptive plan that you're working out, that we can just entrust ourselves to you more and more. And as we join together, as we hold hands, as we walk this road together, there's not clarity that we're after, but to trust you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.